From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. And then all of a sudden, as I began to live through this grief, I realized, you know, if our research on joy doesn't have something to say to suicide rates in America, to the opioid crisis, to my family's suffering, to these weeks of hell, then what we're doing is too shallow. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Angela williams Gorell. She's Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Baylor University's George W. Truett Theological Seminary and is an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church USA. She's the author of Always On, Practicing Faith in a Media Landscape. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. Angela williams Gorell, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm overjoyed to be with you and all of the people listening with us. So I'd like to start our conversation with a moment that comes around the middle of your book. Your husband, Paul, has gone out to the post office, and you expect that Paul will be back in maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, but then two two and a half hours, almost three hours later, and Paul hasn't returned. And then finally he walks in the door and you are feeling all kinds of emotions. And I think that's a good place to start because explaining why you were so worried that Paul might not come back will help me and my listeners to get up to speed on what you're trying to get at in your book, The Gravity of Joy. Yes. I was feeling so many things at that time. This was several months after what I term as four weeks of hell in the gravity of joy. I was working at Yale University at the time, researching joy. That was my job for real. My job was to research joy and to teach a class called Life Worth Living. And at first, when I got the job, I thought, wow, what a moment, what an exciting thing to be a part of. Is there any better work than this in the world? Maybe not. I was elated. And then eight months into working on the Joy Project, in four weeks, in rapid succession, I lost three people that I love. The first was my cousin's husband, Dustin, died by suicide. Two and a half weeks later, my nephew, Mason, died at 22 years old of a previously unknown health condition. And then about five days after Mason's funeral, My dad died after 12 years of opioid use. So I spent the next year and five months in the fog of grief. And somewhere in there, a few months into it, Paul decided to walk to the mailbox. (laughs) And what I describe in the book is what I thought would be just a few minutes of a trip. It turned into two and a half, three hours of him not coming back to the house. 
he had left his cell phone at the house. So I wasn't able to get a hold of him. And I just began, first I walked the neighborhood and I couldn't find him. And then I began driving the neighborhood and then I became hysterical, crying intensely, just because after you lose people like I did in rapid succession, the trauma of that really leaves you with a, just a deep fear of death. And I basically walked around for the next couple of years, really worried about the the next phone call, the next text that I was going to get telling me that someone else that I loved had died. And so when he didn't return (laughs) after what was supposed to be a very short trip, I became hysterical and I really thought that he was dead, honestly. (laughs) He felt horrible. He had gone down the street and while he was putting something in, you know, one of those big blue postal mailboxes, he saw a neighborhood friend that worked at a church near us. And so he went to talk with him and got lost in conversation and just didn't think much of it. What is amazing to me about that answer, and listeners will probably have surmised, but I should say it out loud, that we're going to be dealing with some frank subjects of loss and grief and death in this conversation. And so Listeners who may be triggered by that should be aware and may want to come back to this conversation at some other time. But what strikes me about what you've just said is it's almost like your husband and you were living in two different worlds. He was living in a world where things were normal, living in a world where two plus two equals four, and when you go to the mailbox and you get distracted by a friend, that's just the natural course of things. But this phrase you use, the fog of grief, indicates that you were living in a very different world, a world where people leave and they don't come back. And I'm wondering if if you can think with me about what it was like to try and communicate to your husband, Paul, the kind of world that you were living in at that time. I think that I didn't have a lot of words for it. And that is why I wrote this book instead. I think that, I mean, for, you know, so I didn't have words for having a conversation with people and trying to help them to understand. And maybe it's because I just imagined whether real or not, that people could not meet me where I was. People couldn't understand what I was going through. Even Paul, I really think I thought that he couldn't understand what I was living with And that strikes me that you say that you wrote the book in order to have the words for it. There's one point in your book where you say, it took me nine months of weeping to write the next pages that you're about to read. I really felt palpably the effort that you put into this book and really felt palpably the, I I almost want to say the toll that the book took on you, but that's not quite the right word. This was an effort, but I don't feel like it was necessarily an effort that stole something from you. It almost feels like it did give something back to you. But as I'm grasping for those words, I wonder if you have a word to tell our listeners about what writing this book did for you in the process. It was extremely cathartic. And the book reads a lot like a journal. People who have reviewed the book or people who who have read it so far, people say things like, I feel like I'm reading your journal. This book was extremely cathartic to write because I wrote it in sections and like little stories at a time. So there's even breaks throughout the book that are paint strokes because the book goes back and forth through time, just like a journal would, because when you're writing in a journal, you're not trying to, 
necessarily put everything in a linear fashion like this happened and this happened. You know, you're just writing your thoughts and your feelings and the stories that you're living as they come. And this book is very much written in, in that register. And I think for me, that was very helpful because initially when I got to Yale, I thought, oh, I'll write a book about joy. But it was a very different kind of book, which was just like, are there practices that we can do? It was just going to be a totally different kind of book. And then all of a sudden, as I began to live through this grief, I realized, you know, if our research on joy doesn't have something to say to suicide rates in America, to the opioid crisis, to my family's suffering, to these weeks of hell, then what we're doing is too shallow. And so then it became, this book became a way of, as I was writing, discovering what are we saying in these research papers, in the investigation of joy that we're doing at Yale, what are we saying that actually speaks to this? So it became this dialogue between, you know, what I, what I was researching and investigating and my own life and other people's lives. And it, it really, my own understanding of joy emerged as I wrote. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Angela Williams-Gurrell. She's Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Baylor University's George W. Truett Theological Seminary and is an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church USA. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. A moment ago, you said that you started out the book and started out teaching this class at Yale with a sort of simplified vision of what joy was. And so that leads me to ask, what do people, particularly in our culture in the 21st century right now, what are we getting wrong about joy? I think oftentimes that we think of joy more like we think about happiness. We think that joy is simply a good feeling. And it's more than that. My former boss and my friend and colleague, Dr. Miroslav Wolf, he says that joy is pleasure plus meaning. And so for me, I say in the gravity of joy that joy is the feeling that we get from recognizing and feeling connected to that which is true, meaningful, beautiful, or good, or the connection that we have, the relationship we have with other people. So joy is a very profound emotion. I think too few of us really realize that. It's not simply a good feeling. It's not simply pleasure. And secondly, I think it's important to realize and what I learned through my work and my research at Yale was that joy is the most maybe like modifiable positive emotion there is out there. There's all kinds of joy. There is exuberant joy. That's what a lot of people think of when they think about joy, I think. But there's also redemptive joy restorative joy, healing joy, sobering joy, joy as a bright sorrow, as the priest Alexander Schmemann writes about in one of his journals. Well, there's a point late in the book, The Gravity of Joy, where you write, joy is not naive. And when I came on that line, I, I literally set the book down because <laughs> it just stopped me in my tracks. And I, I think that we're getting at that but in what you've just said. But I'd love to go a little deeper and have you unpack for my listeners what you mean by that line, joy is not naive. Yes, because – and this is the thing that's – so joy can live – joy is not dependent on sorrow, but it can live in close proximity to sorrow. So for example, joy is being the recognition and connection we feel to what is good. When we are suffering or we're in pain, we especially long for the good. 
And so in a moment when we're longing for the good and we suddenly recognize it and we think it has something to do with our life and that brings us joy and it can even in the midst of pain or suffering, that says to me, my joy is not neglecting my grief. I'm not betraying my grief by expressing this joy, by giving myself permission to to fully give myself over to joy, as Mary Oliver has put it so beautifully in one of her poems. But my joy is it's able to both hold the idea that, yes, I'm longing for the good still in my life. I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I'm in pain. But I'm also realizing that it still is out there and I can still feel like it has something to do with my life. You just used a phrase that I want to linger on for a moment. You used the phrase betraying my grief. And I just want to circle back to that and just linger there for a moment. What do you mean when you say betraying our grief? I think that many people, and myself included, in that first year and a half until I met the women in prison that I talk about who really helped me to get on the road to healing from everything that had happened, I think many of us in the fog of grief, we think that to feel any positive emotion when we are sad, in sorrow, when we are suffering, is to somehow neglect that something bad has happened. It means that that in the case of my nephew, for example, his senseless death, it was very hard for me and my sisters, my oldest sister, especially it was her son who died to feel like if we give ourselves over to joy, are we somehow forgetting that he died? You know, I think that's how you can feel after someone you love dies. You can feel like if I give myself over to this positive emotion, whichever one it is, that somehow it means that I'm forgetting that this person died and I love them. But joy is such a gift because in fact, joy, as we express it in our lives, it can be held together with loving and honoring this person. I mean, even the other day someone posted and I'm from vision or something. I'm not sure exactly where it was from, but it said grief is love persevering. And that really resonated with me. And I thought like joy somehow is wrapped up in that as well, that joy, rejoicing, choosing to rejoice in the midst of pain or in suffering is hope persevering. And that doesn't neglect what has happened. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Angela Williams-Gorell. She's Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Baylor University's George W. Truett Theological Seminary and is an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church USA. We're talking about her recent book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years worth of these conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Angela Williams-Gorell. She's Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Baylor University's George W. Truett Theological Seminary, and she's an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church USA. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. In the first segment, we were beginning to talk about grief in a theoretical sense, and we were talking about joy also somewhat in a theoretical sense, and we had talked about the fact that joy is not naive and that joy can live very close to grief. Now I want to get a little bit more concrete and talk about what grief and joy do to our bodies. And the way that I would like to get into this part of the conversation is by switching gears a little bit and talking about one of the people that you mention in your book. I believe her name was Gloria, and she is an inmate in a prison, and you were involved in a prison Bible study where Gloria was. And at one point, Gloria begins breaking down in racking sobs, and she's sobbing through the entirety of the Bible study. And as you're trying to check in, and you're praying for Gloria and praying with Gloria, and others are praying for and with her, one of the things that comes up is she says, I've never felt the presence of God like this before. This isn't bad. This is good. Now, I'm paraphrasing all this, and so if I have any of the details wrong, please feel free to correct me. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about that moment and what joy, what that sense of connection did to her in her body. Yes, it was one of the most remarkable moments of my life. 20 years of ministry and teaching the academy combined. And that moment will stay with me forever. So I I became a chaplain at a women's maximum security prison in May of 2018. And it was just part of a volunteer, you know, a, a team from my church was going there on Wednesday nights. And so I began going every Wednesday night. And the very first night that I was in the prison, I met Gloria. And I realized in those, even in the first few minutes of knowing her that she was struggling with suicidal thinking on a regular basis. She came to Bible study regularly and oftentimes she came and just the darkness was so heavy. She had been through tremendous trauma in her life, had grown up in foster care, been in very abusive relationships, both in foster care, but also in romantic relationships as so many women in prison, the vast overwhelming majority have been in abusive relationships, have been abused. And this particular night was her birthday. And she declared it when she walked into the room. And yes, the details that you recounted are all correct. And I said it was her 21st birthday. And that's the thing. She was so young to have gone through what she had been through. And I told her because it was her 21st birthday, she could pick the song that we sang. And as we sang and danced with each other, I mean, that's the thing over the weeks and months that I was there, the more that we gave each other permission to dance and to sing and to get up from our chairs, it was just like the more that people who joined us felt that same freedom and, you know, joy needs freedom, joy needs room. And so we would just dance and clap and sing. And so on this night we were doing that. And then all of a sudden, her body, as we sat down, gave over, gave, you know, it was a very different. So it went from like jumping and 
screaming excitedly and hands in the air. And like, it seemed like from an exuberant sort of joy to just weeping. And she was almost convulsing. I don't, there was no other night that Gloria cried this hard. And she cried a lot in Bible study because of so many things that she was going through. But on this night, she's just weeping so hard and so viscerally that like, I could not go on with the Bible study. And so I did pray for her, like you said. And at the end of the prayer, she's waving her hand in the air and she's saying to me, you know, basically gesturing, like, I want to say something. And I give her room to say something. And she says, no, like, I'm not sad. And because all of us had thought while she was crying and we were all talking out to her, like, we're so sorry you have to be here on your birthday. We know you miss your family, this and that. And she's like, no, while I was dancing and singing, I felt the presence of God like I've never felt in my life. No, I'm not sad. I'm overwhelmed with joy. And that's a spiritual moment. Let's not discount the fact that that's a spiritual moment. But Mm -hmm. I also want listeners to make the connection that this is a deeply human moment. And here's what I mean by this. Because you say in your book, The Gravity of Joy, that one of the things that these inmates communicated to you was that you were one of the few people in their lives that actually addressed them by their first name, addressed them on a human level, and was actually dealing with them on a level of what would you like to do? You were giving them the opportunity to pick songs and the opportunity to have kind of control and volition in a way that that entire space was designed to rob from them. And so this was a spiritual moment of connection, but also you were talking about the fact that all of you were saying, we're so sorry that you have to be away from your family and your loved ones on your birthday. But in a very real sense, she was surrounded by people who loved her on her birthday. I don't want to overstate that. That's my way of interpreting that situation. You may have a different interpretation, but my sense was she was surrounded by love at that moment. Am am I onto something there? Yes, yes, she was. And that is the thing is that I realized in that moment that somehow against all odds <laughs> in a place that is designed to dehumanize, which is a whole nother conversation about how in the world do we imagine that creating dehumanizing conditions actually helps people to break cycles of violence to themselves and others. I don't know why we imagine that's the way forward. But in a place that's designed, that is designed to dehumanize, we were able together to humanize one another. And it was through everything from telling stories to praying for each other to singing together, dancing together, creating together. And there is something about joy as a work of resistance against despair There's something about freedom. There's something about agency and about relationship with other people that is very healing. Before we move on from this, I want to linger for a moment because we are told in the Gospels that one of the places, and this is in Matthew 25, where we will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ is in visiting the prisoner and in being human with those who society has said do not deserve humanity, do not deserve to have recognition, do not deserve to have autonomy. And so I'd just like you to step back and reflect theologically with me for a moment. What can we learn, what can listeners learn from that experience of seeing Gloria become more alive in that moment? What should we take away from that about what we're called to do when we come to something like a verse like Matthew 25 and the commands to visit the prisoner in jail? I would encourage anybody who has the opportunity to 
be someone who enters into a prison and can spend time there, whether and or even to be a pen pal of someone who's incarcerated. If you have an opportunity to reach out and connect with someone who's incarcerated, you are going to be ministered to by God. That was my experience. And joy is the very presence and being of God is the feeling that we have from being ministered to by God. And if you're longing for joy in your life, especially if you're in the midst of grief, I encourage you to to volunteer your time, whether that's, you know, for some people, you know, teaching a sewing class at a prison or leading a Bible study like I was doing or teaching some other sort of skill in a prison or, like I said, being a pen pal to someone, visiting someone who may be from your church community or in your neighborhood that you know of who's spending time in prison, taking the time to go and visit them. Realizing, I, I think what we see in scripture, the testimony of scripture is that God is at the margins. God's at the edges. If we want to experience God's presence, if we truly want to know what it is to follow Jesus, what it was like to be with Jesus on the way, then we go to the margins. And maybe that looks like being, for me right now, I'm considering becoming a chaplain at an ICE detention center because there's one within 20 minutes of me. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Angela Williams-Gurell. She's an assistant professor of practical theology at Baylor University's Truett Theological Seminary, and today we're talking about her recent book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. Well, a moment ago we were talking about this experience with Gloria, the inmate in the prison, who suddenly was racked with sobs because for the first time in a long time, she felt that human connection and she said, I feel the presence of God. But you've said that all the people around her, they were thinking that she was in pain, that she was grieving, but this was joy. And so here's an example of a joy, a connection that looks a lot like grief. And now I want to flip that around because another thing that you mentioned again and again in your book, The Gravity of Joy, is that there are people around us who are in tremendous pain and they feel for a number of reasons like they have to put on a smile, a happy face. And so with Gloria, we saw joy that was mistaken for grief. I now want you to think with me about grief and suffering that are oftentimes mistaken for happiness or joy. I would like to distinguish between joy and happiness for this particular question, because I think it would be more grief that's mistaken as happiness. So happiness, I feel like we live in a time, especially in American culture, where happiness is the good life. What we are seeking, the the life worth living is a life that is happy. So it's important for people to realize that happiness actually was not widely used in the English language until about the 1800s. Adam Potke talks about this in his book, The Story of Joy, where he is talking about joy being a much older concept and a much truer concept throughout history, especially as it relates to human flourishing. But happiness became a way of talking about, especially in the 1800s, a calculus of material conditions. Happiness is us looking at the circumstances, the conditions of our lives, material, social, political, and otherwise, and thinking, this is enough. This is good. I'm happy about the circumstances around me. Generally, that's what people mean when they're talking about happiness. 
And I think that oftentimes we think because happiness is the good life and we're supposed to be so happy and we think that's how you get respect from people. Like people will want to be me, people will respect me and people will want to relate to me if I have a happy life. So I'm going to spend most of my time on social media and in physical settings with people being clear about how happy I am and not talking about these hard things. I just, I think we feel pressure to do that. And also talking about our grief, it makes us vulnerable and vulnerability is hard. This makes me think of the subtitle of your previous book, Always On. The subtitle is Practicing Faith in a New Media Landscape. As I was listening to your answer, one of the first things that came to my mind visually was Snapchat filters or the ways in which people curate their profiles on a platform like Facebook. They're always presenting the best possible face in this new media landscape. So the social media that we have is constantly telling everyone, oh, I'm great, I'm great, look at the vacation I'm having, look at the dinner that I'm having. And these platforms are not very good for actually, as you said, communicating vulnerability and pain and the connection that comes from those things. And and as I'm making these connections, I don't want to overstate it. Am I understanding correctly some of the limitations that we have, or would you see it in a different way? Certainly. No, I think that those comments that I just made come both from my research that I did for The Gravity of Joy, but also for Always On. And it's interesting because I think people think about the two books that I've written and they're like, these are totally unrelated. How did you write both of these books? But in Always On, I really am critiquing the cultural narratives, the contemporary visions of the good life that have largely influenced and shaped new media culture, but also specifically the new media that has been developed, the devices, the social media platforms and such. And in The Gravity of Joy, I am arguing that contemporary visions of the good life have created a crisis or a culture of despair that has led to increasing suicide rates and addiction. One of the things that comes up again and again in The Gravity of Joy is you talk very frankly about your visible grief, your visible sadness. You talk about being racked with sobs. You talk about, uh, there's one point where right after your father has passed, you walk into a darkened bathroom in the hospital and you just stand in the shower stall and you say, I, I just feel like I needed to weep. And these kinds of things are coming up again and again, particularly as you're talking about your own losses in the gravity of joy. And I'm wondering how you negotiated that, because at the same time that you were having all of these things happen, you were also in a very public setting. You were teaching this class on how to basically live a meaningful life at Yale. You were also involved in other sorts of research. You were involved in other social activities. How did you navigate and negotiate the ways in which you showed your sadness and your grief and the ways in which you felt like you needed to filter and hide that? It was difficult. It was difficult. The story that you were mentioning, it was actually, it was in the hotel room right after I left the hospital and I went to a hotel room to take a shower for the first time in like 36 hours after my dad died. And that's where I was crying. And it was just this, but yeah, for me, grief was such a, it was in the body and there was nothing and the trauma, you know, the body keeps the score, that very amazing book that's been recently published. So there were moments that, in work where I was very intentional about sharing my grief and life worth living was a place that could happen. So my class at Yale, what I found was that we went on this retreat together 
And I just decided, I had this moment where I just thought, I'm going to tell my students what happened. They just need to know what I am carrying. Because my dad's funeral was on a Tuesday and we had our retreat on a Saturday. And it was a week and a half into the class. And I just decided, I am going to tell them what happened to me and see what happens. And then what happened was that all of these students in my class began to open up and to be vulnerable themselves. And many of them had gone through very similar things, if not like not all three things that I'd gone through, but senseless death, suicidal thinking of them, like of a loved one or themselves or a death of a parent. It was incredible. You know, and I often tell my students how you teach teaches. And I think that in that moment, when I decided in the retreat to tell what was going on in my life and just, I don't know that I feel capable of leading a conversation on the life worth living right now, because this is where I'm at. It just opened up the floodgates. And I don't know that any other class I have ever taught in the last eight years has ever become that kind of a community because of, and, you know, and now I say often in teaching vulnerability is strength. Well, and, and what I'm hearing you saying is that the community arose out of that vulnerability. Did I hear correctly that connection right. that you just made? Yes, absolutely. The, the community rose out of the vulnerability. Absolutely. Well, and so there's a sense in which as a teacher, uh, I can see this being a really interesting landscape to navigate because now it's almost like you have another tool in your toolkit of a way of creating empathy and bringing community to a classroom. Is there a temptation to use this in other settings? Or is this something that you feel would be limited to a class like the one on the life worth living that you were teaching at Yale? No, I think that for me, the more that we recognize that people bring their whole selves into a space, and this is the thing, I've taught life worth living in a prison as well, a different prison than I was a chaplain at. So I've taught life worth living in a prison, on a retreat with people like, you know, with professionals and stuff like that. So we've taught life worth living in various settings. And now I'm teaching a version of it at Baylor called Jesus and the Meaning of Life on Mondays right now. And, but I also have seen in all of my classes, no matter what I'm teaching, I start my class by quoting Thomas Groom, who says, to teach is to stand on holy ground people's lives. And I tell my students that they, I have them all stand up on the first day. I tell them that. And then I say this to say that all of who you are is welcome here. Your hopes, your confusions, your fears, your longings, like all of it is welcome here. And I find that the more that I create space for all of who people are in whatever community that I'm leading, the better that community becomes like at actually relating to each other, at getting at the hard questions that keep people awake at night. I mean, that's really my, <laughs> the love of my life in the, the research of my life is trying to address the things that keep people awake at night. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Angela Williams-Gorell. She's an assistant professor of practical theology at Baylor University's George W. Truett Theological Seminary, and she's an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church USA. She's the author of Always On, Practicing Faith in a New Media Landscape, and today we're talking about her recent book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years' worth of these conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Angela Williams-Gorell. She's an assistant professor of practical theology at Baylor University's George W. Truett Theological Seminary. She's an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church USA, and she's the author of Always On, Practicing Faith in a New Media Landscape. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. So the Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann has a sort of three-part movement that he uses to read the psalms. He says that some psalms are psalms of orientation. The righteous are rewarded, the unrighteous are punished, the universe makes sense. Then he says some psalms are psalms of disorientation. The righteous are punished, and those that are unrighteous seem to be rewarded, the universe doesn't make sense. And then he classifies a third type of psalms that he calls the psalms of reorientation. I remember that there was a time when the universe didn't make sense. Nevertheless, I will proclaim the glory of the Lord, and I will proclaim that God will make things make sense again. When we get to the last part of your book, The Gravity of Joy, that's very much the way that I felt about how you were now talking about joy. When you say that joy is not naive, you say that joy is not denying that grief exists and is not denying that trauma has happened, but rather has found a way to, and this is going to be my word, not yours, so maybe you have a better word, but to reintegrate itself with the trauma and with the grief and still have... I don't even know what the word is, hope or connection or a sense of of purpose. Like all these things seem to be wrapped up very complexly in this sense of what you're bringing us to when you're talking about joy at the end of your book. Now, all of these are my words and, and ways of trying to get at what you're doing, but this complexity of joy, this fullness of joy, it felt to me incredible. And, and it felt like in, in media, we say that it's an earned ending. This felt like an earned ending, that your way of talking about joy. But I'd love for you to share with our listeners kind of what joy means to you now and the ways in which joy has become more complex to you and more rich to you in this process. Thank you so much for those words. And Dr. Bergman's research and his writing and scholarship has been such a gift to me and to so many. For me, my favorite description of joy in this book is joy as an illumination, the ability to see beyond to something more. My journey through grief absolutely taught me that even in the midst of sheer silence, even in the midst of profound suffering and grief, I have to believe, because this is the thing that sustains me and has sustained me, that there is something more beyond what the eye can see, what I can see, that God is doing something, that there's a larger story being told, that my story, my family's story, your story is caught up in this larger story being told. 
And that for me is the way that I have made sense of everything that has happened so that I can go to sleep at night and get up every morning and keep going about my life. And it's a gift that, you know, and the thing is that people do read this book and in the first few chapters feel like, wow, I I mean, I got literally an email just a little bit ago that said, I'm just crying the whole time I'm reading the first few chapters of this book, because I think, especially for people who have lost a loved one to any of the ways that I have really, you read this book or you lost a parent and you just think, oh my goodness, this is very sad and this is hard, but eventually the joy does come. And I think as you're reading The Gravity of Joy, you are very much yearning for it. You're longing for it. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, I thought this book was about joy. And yet she's writing about profound grief. And the thing is that I am asking readers to trust me that the joy does come, but that this is the most authentic way that I could invite you into thinking about joy amid suffering is that it's not a quick thing. You know, you do. It is like the journey of grief. You have to feel every ounce of it. You have to walk through it. You can't go around it. You can't go under it. You can't go over it. You have to go through it, which means sometimes recognizing that you're angry like I was, that you're fearful like I was. But eventually I did feel, and I pray and hope that every person who is listening today, who's going through something, I pray that you can believe that one day too, you will see the something more you will have the illumination, you will feel the gift of God ministering to you, and you will realize, oh my goodness, against all odds, joy has found me. I I just have to speak personally now, because in reading your book, I had a similar moment to the person that emailed you. I've shared with listeners that a little over a decade ago, I lost my mother, and she and I had a very complex relationship. There was substance abuse and other sorts of things. We, We left things with unfinished business. And so my journey that actually in some ways led me to radio was a journey of grief and of trying to heal. But a connection that I didn't make until I read your book, The Gravity of Joy, the first several years after she died, I was so angry. And I didn't realize and I didn't connect the anger to the loss. I just thought that I was in a, a bad situation at work or that I was having you know, frustrations and, and all these sorts of things. But I realize now that was grief. But I didn't realize it until I was sitting there reading your book a decade later. And so <laughs> I, I want to say, first of all, thank you. But I also want to ask you about that because I think sometimes people associate you know, grief with sadness, but they don't necessarily associate grief with anger. But you just mentioned it. And I, I want to say I resonate with that. How does grief connect with anger and how does anger connect with joy? Grief connects with anger because when we lose someone or something or a dream or a relationship, you know, that we loved, if we, you know, for example, or even grief can come in all kinds of forms. Another form of loss is like, as we age, we lose the ability to do things that we used to love to do and stuff like that. I mean, there's all different kinds of grief. And when you lose something that you love or someone that you love or a dream that you had, an ability that you had, these sorts of things, you realize life is different. It's never going to be the same again. And that can create a lot of anger. That's what it did for me. I was angry that life was so different and yet it was so the same. And I say in the book, you know, it was like, I I still had to pay my mortgage at the time I was doing rent, but it's like now, you know, we still have to pay our bills every month. 
I still have to go to work every day. You know, life is the same. And yet it's radically different because this has happened to me. And I'm angry about it. I'm angry that I have to go to work every day and relate to people. And for many of us, put on a happy face and pretend like everything's well when it's not. It's not right. Or I'm angry that I did lose this person. I'm angry that my nephew died at 22 and there's nothing that anybody can do about it. And life will never be the same for my oldest sister, for Steph. Like I am angry about that to this day. I'm angry about it saying it right now, you know? So I think it's important to realize that absolutely anger is a very important emotion to recognize in the journey of grief with people. And if you are someone who leads a Christian community or any community, If you have an ability to say to people, hey, if you're going through grief, anger is going to be a part of this. Please do it. Let's normalize anger as a part of the grief journey and help people to find constructive ways to express their anger. Because anger is an emotion that is telling us that something is wrong. And so we have to pay attention and ask, what is it? And then the way that anger relates to joy is that oftentimes anger, especially righteous anger, when we think about the social unrest of the last year, when we think about the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement is 100% righteously angry, you know, and that righteous anger has to be expressed because in that anger is good anger. It's righteous anger because it's anger about um, injustice. It's anger about the way that the, the world is not as it ought to be. And joy is a celebration of what ought to be. And so in order to actually get to the joy, we have to be able to express our anger in constructive ways. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Angela williams Gorell. She's an assistant professor of practical theology at Baylor University's Truett Theological Seminary. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Gravity of Joy, a story of being lost and found. Earlier in the conversation, you talked about when you begin teaching classes, you invite your students to stand up and to beckon them to imagine themselves standing on holy ground, and you talk about wanting to engage them with their whole selves. And at other points in your book, The Gravity of Joy, this comes up again and again, that we are incomplete if we're not accessing those parts of ourselves that are feeling anger and joy and relief and trauma. And so maybe a listener has been moved by what they've heard so far in our conversation, but all of their life has been spent training themselves bodily to ignore these little nudges that draw them to their whole selves. And so what are some steps that a listener could begin doing right now, a step that a listener could take to begin reconnecting with themselves in a whole sense, not just a part here and a part there, but to begin to stitch those parts together, to really reconnect and love themselves in a way that can lead to some healing and lead to this vision that sees beyond? There are multiple practices that people can take up to begin to live more authentically, like their whole self. I'll mention a few. One for me that's been really powerful is this, my trauma therapist, which I still see. And it's important for people to know that I've done two different forms of therapy to recover to be like on this road of healing from everything that has happened. It was just four years ago that these things occurred. And so one thing that you can do is what's called what's known as dumping, where you get some paper. And for me, I just have this notebook and I will write 
everything that I'm feeling, especially when it begins to well up in me and I'm feeling really confused, really anxious, if I'm feeling really angry or whatever, or feeling like I don't even know what I'm feeling right now, I will write everything that comes to mind. And I don't write clearly. I let it just because I'm not going to read it. Nobody else is going to read it. And I sometimes the words are much bigger on one line. It goes across the lines. It's just all across. I'm literally dumping everything I'm thinking and feeling on these pages. And then I don't read through it. I take it out of, I rip it out of the notebook. I crumple it up and I throw it away. That is one practice that helps us like dumping is an important thing, especially when you've been through trauma, when you've been through really painful experiences in your life that helps you to, it's a bodily, emotional, and mental, it's a a whole body release that helps you, especially if you're in the midst of work or something like that, and you're really trying, and you just want to get it out there. And I think that gives way, think like a practice like dumping gives way to other moments where maybe you actually want to write out a lament. The Psalms are a beautiful example of lament. And I think it's important for people to be able to, you know, you can sit down and you can actually write out, I'm angry about this. I'm sad about this. I'm fearful about this or whatever it is. And if you want to, you can do it in a more poetic form. If that you know is exciting to you in a creative writing form, or you could just write it out. And then as you're lamenting, then you can also put in your questions there. What do you want to say to God? What do you want to say to other people? Let's be honest. Like, you know, and there's something about lament. It, it's a gateway to joy. Because as we lament, we recognize the good that we're longing for, the meaning that we're longing for, the true, like, what is true? What am I seeking right now? And it's in the midst of seeking that we become more open, I think, to joy because we find what we're looking for. There's a lot in that answer, and I'm very grateful for those very practical steps that a listener could take. But in the course of your answer, I was drawn to another thought. And it has to do with writing, but in a slightly different way. You and I are having this conversation, and a listener might say, you know, all of this is just a very secular process. It's a very psychological process that these two people are talking about. But this came up in your answer. This is the very basis of the show that I'm I'm doing here. The whole notion that somehow faith matters and that there's another dimension to this. And the place where that really grounds out very poignantly for me is in a different form of writing, and that is... Almost a year exactly before your father passes, you mention in your book, The Gravity of Joy, that you have this almost compulsion to call your father up and to speak to him and to journal what he says. And then when you're going to be with him as he's passing away a year later, that same journal makes the trip with you and you rediscover the words that he said that night. I read that as being something more than simply a secular process. I read that in my own spirituality as a a kind of little nudge from the Holy Spirit that was looking out for you. Now, that's my interpretation. I'm wondering how you feel about it, but also if you could say a little bit more about what happened both in that conversation a year before and how that notebook came back as a comfort to you when your father passed. Absolutely. For me as a Christian, I think about the night that I had that dream, January 24th, 2016, as being a moment when God spoke to me in a dream. As a Christian, I am 
it's I'm very convinced that God has spoken to me numerous times through dreams. God speaks to people in all different forms. And we see that throughout the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament and then throughout the Christian, you know, throughout history, we see that God speaks to people in different ways. One way that God speaks to me is through dreams. And I woke up that morning and I thought, you know, I had a conversation with Paul and I said, I feel that like, like God told me in this dream to call my dad and to write down everything he says. And Paul said, then you should do it. You know, And so I call him and I do, I just listen to him. And it was so interesting. The other thing that the piece about this, that really is a faith piece for me is that my dad and I had not had a lucid conversation for a couple of years. I mean, really for the last three years of his life, he very much struggled to put sentences together. A lot of times I called him and he was too sleepy to talk or he fell asleep on the phone or he's just too sick and all these sorts of things. And so the fact that also when I called him, that he actually had a lot to say to me. And then the things that he said, which I recount in the book, because I gave, you know, I shared parts of the things that he said in the homily that I gave at his funeral you know, he saying things like, no matter what happens, know that I'm proud of you. When I die, please don't cry. Know that I'm in a better place. I'm sorry for this and this. It was, it's, it's just incredible. And for me, literally the only sort of way that I can think about what happened, both having the dream and having this, just feeling very compelled that I needed to call him and then specifically write down what he said. I had never felt called ever to like grab my journal and write down what my dad said. And then secondly, for him to be lucid enough and then for him to say the things that he did for me, that is otherworldly. It's unexplainable. It's beyond my intellectual capacities. For me, it is, it's in the spiritual realm. We started this conversation with you saying that when you began writing this book, you had an idea of what it was going to be. And then in the course of writing it, the trajectory of the book changed dramatically. I would imagine that the audience that you imagined on the receiving end of this book also changed dramatically. And so if you could think about who your ideal reader for the book would be now, how would you describe that ideal reader? If you're longing for joy in your life, if you're searching for it, you're yearning for it, especially because you have been through profound grief of any kind, it is my great hope that you read this book and you feel seen, you feel heard, and you feel resonated with, and you feel the freedom to tell your story to other people if you haven't done so already. I mean, that's the ideal audience is people who have who are looking for joy amid suffering. Well, Angela Williams-Gorrell, that's very much how I received the book. And as I mentioned earlier, I learned from your book about my own process of grief, and your book helped me on my journey of healing. I'm profoundly Sorry on behalf of my listeners for the pain that you have endured and the losses that you have had, and I want to express my deepest sympathies about that. But I also want to say how thankful I am that you had the bravery and the sight to take those losses and write them down in a way that was so inviting to healing. I am incredibly grateful for that and for your time speaking with us today. And I want to say I am very grateful back to you for all of the words that you just shared with me, for your questions today, for reading this book, and for what you're doing on a weekly basis for listeners. We've been speaking today with Angela williams Gorell. 
She's assistant professor of practical theology at Baylor University's George W. Truett Theological Seminary and is an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church USA. She's the author of Always On, Practicing Faith in a New Media Landscape. Today we've been talking about her recent book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijip. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.